Hello, women in the word. So good to be here with you today. So good to see everyone. I'm Lynn Kitchens. I'm happy to continue looking at David with you. He is a hard guy to keep up with. We've kind of been going everywhere with him. He's running from Saul. He's here and there. He's in caves. He's in cities. He's in the wilderness. Now we find him. He's actually living with Israel's chief enemy, the Philistines. And we wonder why. So in David's last encounter with Saul, David again spared Saul's life. We saw that just um, a couple weeks ago, how he took Saul's spear David did, and he took his water jug, but he didn't harm Saul. And when that was over, uh, afterwards, Saul basically said, good for you, David. Bye. And he goes back home. But David knows in his heart, Saul is still totally bent on destruction of David. So in 27.1, here's what David basically says. David said in his heart, now one day Saul's going to catch me. One day, Saul is going to kill me. So there's nothing better for me to do than to escape to the land of the Philistines. Because then Saul will be searching all over Israel, and he's going to get real tired because he's never going to find me, and then he's just going to give up. This sounds like good logic if you didn't believe God. If you didn't believe God had anointed you to be the king of Israel... If you didn't believe God had incredible plans for your future, if you didn't remember all the ways God had blessed and directed and anointed you, but David did believe those things, and yet he still went to Philistia. And so his running to live with the Philistines seems like the actions of a man who is just tired of running. It seems like the actions of a man who fears for his life. It seems like the actions of a man who decided what was best for his life without even asking God. In fact, 27.1, David said to his heart, Saul wants to kill me. I'll go live with the Philistines. He didn't say that to God. He said that to himself. We've talked a little bit in the past about how man's sins against us cannot stop the plans of God in our lives. But what about our sins? What about when we really mess up? Can we sin so badly that we can't get back into God's good graces? And we can know the answer by looking at who? David. We can learn. Yes, we can. We can see that our sins won't stop the work of God in our lives because our God reigns over all things. And aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad for the sovereignty of God in our lives, the providence of God? Where would David have been without it? Where would we be without it? We can know God will continue to work good in our lives even when we stray from his path, look at 2 Timothy 2 on your verse sheet. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Job learned this in the next verse. I know you can do all things, God, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Proverbs 19, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. David had a foolish plan, 
but the purpose of the Lord would stand. It made me think of that great hymn, Praise to the Lord who over all things so wondrously reigneth, shelters us under his wings, gently sustains us. Have you not seen how all your desires have been granted in what he ordaineth? Uh, my husband likes to tell the story of the missionary, Amy Carmichael. You know, as a little girl, she wanted blue eyes. Blue eyes, blue eyes, didn't have blue eyes, had brown eyes. So she would just pray and pray that God would give her blue eyes. And she just knew one day he would do that. He never did that. She never understood that. And then she went to India as a grown woman and started an incredible ministry with women and girls and began a girls' orphanage in India. And guess what? The India people back then didn't trust anybody with blue eyes. You know, we see the little picture and God sees the big picture. He's the sovereign weaver in our lives. He's the one we've talked about, how he creates a beautiful tapestry. And you look on the back of any tapestry, and there's knots, and there's things changing in wrong colors. And those are the sins, the trials in our lives, the things we do wrong in our lives. But the whole time, our wonderful God, the sovereign weaver, he turns that tapestry over, and there's his plan. There's his beautiful picture for our lives. Uh, I read about this famous painter. He was in the Victorian era. And once when he was pretty young, he was visiting someone in this old mansion in Scotland. And so the people were having dinner and someone spilled their entire drink on the wall in the dining room. It left this big stain. And there was nothing really they could do about it. So all the people decided to go on a walk, and this young artist decided that he would stay behind. He had some charcoal in his pocket, and he took that stain and made this beautiful forest scene. So when all the people came back, on the wall is this beautiful work of art. And that's us. We have some stains in our lives. God can take them, and through his grace, he uses them to bless us and bring him glory. He hates our sin, but it doesn't stop God. He uses those things so we can be more and more like him each new day. Now, in this story, David's eyes were on the little picture instead of the big picture of God's plans to him when he fled to the Philistines. And he would face some consequences, but we'll see how God never deserted him. Even when, unbelievably so, David is about to head into battle against Israel. The nation that God loved, the nation that David was supposed to one day rule, sovereignly God would protect him from battling against Israel. So let's look back at chapter 28 to see how he got in this predicament. So in those days, verse 1, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel, and Achish said to David, Understand, you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, 
I will make you my bodyguard for life. Okay, earlier we learned how David had been untruthful with King Achish. He's the king of Gath, one of the cities in Philistia. And David was pretending to serve a lot of the interests of the king by going out into other territories and raiding them and um, just taking over and bringing back the spoils from these other places. Well, all along, David was really attacking all the enemies of Israel. But Achish didn't know this. And so Achish, the result of David's deceit was he begins to think, wow, Israel hates David now. And he is a friend to the Philistines. This goes deep in Achish's heart. But David's success in duping Achish places David in that precarious situation of battling Israel. So here's one of the consequences of David's frightened flight to Philistia. One day, would it be told in the stories that Israel tells, yes, our King David once fought and killed many of the Israelites and served alongside our chief enemy, the Philistines. Would that ever have to happen in Israel? So if we look closer at how David responded to what Achish told him, that you have to fight with me against Israel, David says these words, you shall know what your servant can do. Really? What does that mean? Pretty vague, pretty vague answer there, pretty evasive, pretty noncommittal. Another way to say it would be, conditions will determine what I will do. But Achish, he's so in love with David, he just takes that as, oh yes, you're coming to fight with me. In fact, he blurts out, you will become my bodyguard for life. He was really duped really duped by David. And this is interesting. The literal word for bodyguard is keeper of my head. So Achish is saying to David, you shall be the keeper of my head. Did Achish know the story of Goliath? We wonder. He may have forgotten Goliath's fate, but we will see the commanders did not. So all of this leads to the question, is David going to fight Israel? Would David fight Israel? It's hard to tell when we read this story, but the answer really seems to point to no. We know how David repeatedly said, I will not touch or harm the Lord's anointed, which is Saul, who would have been a part of that battle. And David continually said the fate of Saul was in control by Yahweh God, not in the hands of David. David believed that. And David knew that he was ordained to be king of Israel. Why would he fight Israel? Not to mention David loved Israel. And he loved Israel's God. Remember his words when he stood face to face with Goliath and he's looking out and he's seeing him make fun and mock Israel. And he says, who's going to take away this Goliath's reproach of Israel? And who is this uncircumcised Philistine to make fun of the armies of the living God? Some think David may have gone into battle just to take a position to protect Achish, because Achish had given him a city, had provided for him. 
but he wouldn't have gone into the battle to fight Israel. That's one thought. But probably David was anxiously waiting to see how is God going to get me out of this one? <laughs> Will he intervene and get me out of this predicament I made? He did. Look at verse, chapter 29, verse 2. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who's been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I found no fault to him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him and they said to him, send this man back that he may return to the place to which you've assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Isn't this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands? Okay, let's imagine the scene. Five major cities in the country of Philistia, and they're all here with their five kings that ruled over them. It had to be an astounding sight to see all these men coming together, these mighty soldiers with their mighty kings, powerful, gathering not just to have a simple raid somewhere, but this is to be a conquest, a campaign of conquest. So they're gathered in this valley in the plains of Aphek, the very place where the Philistines 90 years earlier had battled Israel and defeated them mightily and stolen the Ark of the Covenant from Israel this happened here. Israel has the ark back at this point. So all these mighty soldiers are in full battle array. They have their officers, their princes, and the Philistines of Gath, Achish and his men and David's men, they are the rear guard of this huge display, including David and Achish. So along come the commanders, they're looking out over the troops, they get to the very rear and they stop and they go, wait a minute, who are these guys here? These are Hebrews, these are Israelites, what are you doing? And they turned to Achish and said, explain yourself, what's going on here? For some reason, Achish, because again, I think he really likes David, thinks when I tell them that it's David, they will calm down. Okay, no, they won't. When he tells them, it's David, of course it's David. Look, he's with me. He deserted Israel. Achish is oblivious to the fact that the memory of David taking the head of their military giant Goliath is still fresh in the minds of these commanders. And also, they know the song. They know the song that sings about David's victories. It's still ringing in their ears. Maybe they even sang a few bars of it to Achish, in case he didn't know it. Achish may have trusted David, but the commanders wisely did not. What if he turns against us in battle? What if he wants to take more heads back home, just like he took Goliath? And then he can use those to reconcile himself with Saul as gifts to Saul because he deserted him. 
That's their thinking. And because of that, God sovereignly used those commanders' fears of his past victories, David's past victories, to prevent a future disaster in David's life. Now Achish has to break the news to David, and it sort of seems like a love fest. So look at verse 6. David, Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you've been honest, and to me it seems right you should march out and in with me in the campaign, for I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's don't approve of you. So go back now, go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. David said to Achish, what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know you're blameless in my sight, as blameless as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to battle. Okay, so did you notice the first thing that Achish does? He swears his allegiance to David by God's David, by the existence of God's David. And it makes us realize, you know, the lost can know about God, but not necessarily follow him. They followed false gods, and Achish still was. Achish was close enough to David to know what kind of language he should use that David would most appreciate and most understand. So there's lots of flattery going on here. And I thought, you know, flattery is what often keeps us in the wrong places with the wrong people. Pretty hard to ignore that. In fact, look at Ephesians 5. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, don't become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness. Now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Okay, David right now is partnered to pagans, and so he's hearing these kind of flattery things. Okay, what about David's response to Achish? We can look at it a lot of ways, but here's a few things. Maybe David really did appreciate uh, Achish's protection, and so he used these words here to let Achish know, you know, I appreciate who you are and what you've done for me, but it doesn't mean he was going to go into battle with him. Or maybe David just had to act disappointed <laughs> so Achish would keep up his allegiance with David for the future. One person said this, the gullible Achish is no match for the wily David. Could be true. Which would mean that David was just keeping up a charade with Achish, pretending to be Israel's enemy. But I thought this was interesting. When David said, what have you found against your servant? Of course, Achish could have found many things against David, but he was not smart enough to notice these things. And when David said this, why can't I go and fight the enemies of my lord the king? Who was David's lord the king? Was it Achish or was it Saul? Remember when they were in a cave together, the first thing David said when he came out, 
to Saul was my Lord the King. So when David makes these, this phrase to Achish, he really may have been speaking about Saul. Maybe David had some kind of plan up his sleeve at the rear of this army thing to really attack the Philistines somehow and fight for his Lord and King Saul. Uh, but we can't know exactly what he meant. The truth is he didn't have to fight those people, Israel, that he loved and will one day rule. It was not the plans of God. And so God had David sent home to Ziklag, the town that Achish had given him. If David had stayed in the rear of that big army and gone into that battle, he would not have gotten home in time to face another battle of Ziklag and the Amalekites that stole their families. So every step that David took as he returned to Ziklag were steps lovingly ordained by God. Here's what happened. Each step he took, he didn't have to battle Israel. He didn't have to be connected to Saul's death. So that's a spoiler alert. Saul is going to die. If you didn't know that, sorry. <laughs> and David rescued, got home in time to rescue the families. So before we head to Ziklag, let's pick up some battle tips because we have our own life's battles, sometimes from our own sin. So to avoid dwelling in dangerous territory, we should seek God instead of security. You know, it was David's fear for security that took him to this wrong territory. When we feel insecure and fears are there, we often join up into the wrong things. It drove him into the land of Israel's enemy. We want to sometimes move into enemy territory, maybe unknowingly, when we're fearful and insecure. We might surround ourselves with the wrong people, have pick up some wrong activities that can relieve us of our fears. They are just quick fixes. They are not lasting fixes. Sort of reminded me of that classic tale. You've probably heard this. A guy named Jack, he's out jogging one day. He's running. He's not paying attention. And he runs off the side of a cliff. And so he slides down the cliff, and he's hanging on a branch, and he starts yelling, Help! Anybody up there, help me! Help! Now all of a sudden, he hears a voice. Jack, who is it? It's me, the Lord. What? It's me. It's God. Thank God it's God. Well, help me. I'll do, I'm going to stop sinning, God. I'm not going to sin ever again. I'm just going to do whatever you want me to do. We'll talk about that later, Jack. Right now, you just listen to me. Okay, what do you want me to do, God? Just let go of the branch. What? Let go of the branch. Just trust me, Jack. Is there anybody else up there? They could help me. You know, that's what we do sometimes when we're afraid. We don't want to let go of the silly, weak branch and trust God because it's something that's a quick fix for us. When we start feeling insecure, that's the best time to move into God's territory, to begin to trust God and find that peace that is lasting, that passes understanding. Okay, another thing, when we face life's battles, stay on the path God's mapped out for you. David knew 
the, the path that God had mapped out for him. We know the path. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Stepping off that path puts us in dangerous territory. No matter where that might be, we won't be satisfied. We will face some really hard consequences like David is. Also, we want to align ourselves with people to avoid spiritual compromise, align ourselves with God's people. The people that were surrounding David right now were pagan people, didn't believe in God. And I thought, who is surrounding us when we are in the middle of a trial and a battle? Are we attaching ourselves to bad counseling? Are we are attaching ourselves to certain authors? Are we attaching ourselves to people that maybe don't really know God? If they're not God's people, we may find that we're in a battle against the things of God that we know to be true. I've used this illustration before, but it fits here so well. When I was in high school and I was going on a choir trip in Illinois, we're going to go to the University of Illinois and sing at something, I can't remember what. We're all on a big bus. But before we went, we could pick who we're going to room with. And I had my couple of Christian friends in choir, but then there were these other kind of edgy girls that I thought, they're really fun, though. We'll have a fun We'll have a fun time. I kind of ignored my Christian friends, got on the bus, went with these girls, and sure enough, from the get-go, they decide, we're going to do everything bad we can and not tell Lynn. So what they did was they would just lie to me. I'd say, where's everyone else? They're over there, and the teacher said, we can go here. Okay. Okay, now what are we doing here? How are we supposed to get back to our hotel? Well, they said we could find our own ride back to the hotel. Okay, everything they said was wrong and a lie. And we get back, the whole choir hates us, the whole busload of people, because we ruined their afternoon as they drove around the campus trying to find us. And they threw us in a room, and we were not allowed to come out all night. So I wish I had a camera, because this is my friends jumping on the bed, singing and dancing, and me in a corner, crying my eyes out, because we are rejected. We have, I have aligned myself <laughs> with people who could care less about authority or respect or following any kind of rule. Then the next morning, they lie in the whole choir in two rows, and we have to quietly walk down the middle with our bags and get on a bus and are sent back home. I was mortified. It was a horrible experience for me. Got on the bus. I'm in the corner crying again in the back <laughs> on a seat, and I look up, and there's my friends dancing down the bus aisle. They could care less. This was their everyday <laughs> kind of life aligning ourselves with the wrong people, everything I stood for was broken. Everything. So people that don't know the Lord are not the right people to go to when we are in a battle. Okay, God directed David to rescue these families that are in trouble. Turn to chapter 30. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. 
They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Okay, let's think about the Amalekites a minute. A nomadic people, they roamed around from the Negev. They were also the people who attacked Israel many years earlier. When Israel was fleeing Egypt, it was the Amalekites who treated them horribly, and God had placed them under divine judgment. So let's remind ourselves of that. Look at Deuteronomy 25. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he didn't fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget." Okay, who did God recently say destroy all the Amalekites and he didn't do it? Saul. Who has been making raids against the Amalekites while he lived in Ziklag? David. Obviously, he didn't find all of them because some of them came back here. So while David and his men are preparing to possibly battle against Israel, the Amalekites found it a perfect time to retaliate against David's raids, go into Ziklag, destroy it, and capture all their possessions and people. And so David's unwise flight to the Philistine territory that he made over a year ago to find safety for him and his followers proved unsuccessful because he did this without seeking God's wisdom. So the Amalekites carry off everyone who lived in Ziklag to become slaves. In verse 2, the word carried off is a very brutal term used when you're driving animals out of a certain area and taking them somewhere. So David and his men come near their homes and no children run out to greet them. No smell of dinner coming from the homes, just burning cinders. No sounds of laughter. No sounds at all. They come around the bend, and there is their entire town burned down with not one of their loved ones in it. This loss was so unexpected and so great, they wept until all their strength was gone. So David and men witnessed this devastation and deeply grieved over the loss of their families. But I have to wonder, was this a way for God to get David's attention? We haven't seen evidence of David seeking God for over a year now in this story. 
just making his own decisions. Now his wives are gone, his men have turned against him, and it says they are bitter in soul. Maybe bitter that David took them to live in Philistia in the first place. Maybe they didn't want to be there. And then maybe bitter because they had to leave their families to go into this stupid battle against Israel that they wouldn't have wanted to fight either. Either way, they, th they thought, let's blame David for all of this. Our families are gone. Our homes are gone. And David had faced threats from enemies inside Israel and outside Israel, but never had his 600 men all turned against him. So he's alone. He's very distressed. He proved, though, that David was a man after God's own heart because he immediately goes to God for strength and direction. We can picture his men sort of lying around weeping, hopeless, distraught, without any direction. David went to God. He asked the priests immediately bring the ephod to seek him, and this was a breastplate on the priestly garment of the priest. It held the Urim and the Thummim gemstones, and I thought it was neat that those were held in a pocket by the heart of the priest, and they used these to find out the will of God. So David sought God, and God was sovereign. God was there, and God was all reigning, already reigning over the situation at hand. So God tells David, yes, pursue the Amalekites. You will overtake them. You will rescue their families. And David obeys immediately, gets up, gets his men, and off they go. But David's men had been traveling for days to get to Ziklag. And it was like about 80 miles. So it took 13 more miles to get to the brook, the brook of Besor, which they first go to. The brook of Besor at that time of year would have had rushing waters and runoff and been pretty dangerous. So when those 600 men get there, 200 men say, we can't do it. We can't cross. We are too exhausted. So David leaves some of the baggage and leaves the men and says, we'll be back. So they take the 400 men, and as they are starting out after these enemies, they come to an open field, and there lies an Egyptian man, almost dead probably, lying in the open country, and they bring him to David. They find out he's a servant of an Amalekite, and then we think, what a coincidence. Was it a coincidence? I believe it was a sovereign act of God in order to help David and guide him to their enemy. And we can learn when we read the story, the Amalekites, they were heartless, cold, cruel people. Here this man is a servant, and he says to his master, I'm ill, and he just leaves him in the field to die, gives him no food, no water. David and his men come, and we see this big contrast. Who was in a bigger hurry right now than David? Nobody. And yet they stop. I, I'm thinking once he heard he was a Malachite and worked for them, David could have taken his knife to his neck and said, tell me right now where they are because we're in a big hurry. They stop. They get him food. They get him drink. 
They care for him. And when he's ready, he lets them know about the position of the Amalekites. And so he takes David there, and David promises he won't harm him. So let's see what happens then. Verse 16. And when the servant had taken David down, behold, the, the uh, people were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they'd taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. He also captured all the flocks and the herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Is this not the graciousness of God? Even with all those earlier failures of David, God was more than gracious to protect and save and gather and return all of those things that mattered to David and his men right back to him. It's something we can remember when we are in our life's battles that God is faithful to turn our failures into victories when we go to him when we seek him, we may have some battle scars. We may have victories that weren't what we expected and didn't come when we expected. But our sovereign commander is gracious to steer those things into good for our lives. In fact, one man wrote this, if matters are only begun with the Lord, he will give his success in due season. Because we belong to God. And he belongs to us. Of course he's going to be there for us. He loves us unconditionally. Look at 2 Thessalonians. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Philippians, and I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. James 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Incredible promises for us. We never go into the battlefield alone. God wants to be there for us. He wants to meet our needs. God's son experienced these kind of life battles that we do. He understands our weaknesses. Look at Matthew 11. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So when we share our hurts with the caring God, we are going to be strengthened, and we're going to be given direction, just like David was. Even when the hurts could be consequences of our own sin. I read the story about a little girl who was eight years old who'd lived in foster homes her whole life, and then this family adopted her when she was eight. And the father found out that a couple times during her eight years, she had been living with families 
that would go to Disneyland and everybody would go but her. And they would tell her, you have such bad behavior, you don't get to go. So when the father heard this, his first thought was, I'm taking her to Disneyland. And he had other children too, so they all began planning for the big day. Almost immediately when he told her we're going to Disneyland, she started acting out. She started being really bad, worse, worse every day. And one day she said to the father, you're not going to take me, are you? And he said, I came this close to saying, no, we're not. (laughs) But he knew he had to show the grace of God. And he said, we're taking you. She never changed her behavior even after that, got worse and worse. The moment she set her foot into Disneyland, she began to change. She had the time of her life. She loved it. And when he tucked her in bed that night, he said, how would you like Disneyland? And she said, I loved it. And I got to go not because I was good, but because I'm yours. That is true for us. Sometimes we do bad things, but we still get good things from our God because we belong to him. We are his. I love how this story ends when David and the people return. 200 men at the rushing brook, probably fearful, probably nervous, waiting to hear from David and his men. And so all of a sudden in the distance, They hear the voices of children calling. They hear the wives singing. They hear the bleeding of their animals. And the 200 men run up to meet David, and they rejoice and celebrate in this incredible victory. But there's the grumpy old party poopers, the men who don't want to share anything with the 200 men that were too tired to come with them. They want to throw a wet blanket over everything. So look at verse 22. All the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they didn't go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil we've recovered, except they can lead away their wife and children and depart. David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us, who would listen to you in this matter. For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stayed by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. Remember the original men who joined up with David? They were the distressed, the discontent. They were in debt. They were the least likely people to demonstrate any kind of kindness and grace to others. And so they turned their eyes inward instead of upward, thinking they won the battle. David's eyes were where? On the Lord knowing the victory came from him. And since the spoils were this general gift from, generous gift from God's hands, who were they to hold on to them selfishly? I love that David credited the victory against the Amalekites and all the spoils as gifts from God to be shared with everyone. And he didn't stop there because we read that he legislated this practice of generosity and kindness and equity into a statute for all the people, and it kept Israel's eyes over the year 
years looking upward, remembering the battle is the Lord's. The glory goes to God. And we share the spoils. But then David's eyes looked outward. Who else should we bless with these spoils? So we generously shared the spoils with Israel, with the cities in Judah, with the people who had taken care of David, his friends, to show gratitude for their support. Think of how many people in these cities and how many cities had to help David while he was on the run from Saul. He wants to tell them how much he appreciated it. And they would also bless the cities because the Amalekites had been ravaging Israel's cities. And so David's returning some of the things that were theirs any, anyway. And David was reminding them, you have my heart. I know I live in Philistia. My heart is with you, Israel. It would remind the leaders about that. So what about us when a battle ends, a trial, our own failures may have brought about? We also, when that battle ends, we give God the glory. We are thankful for the gifts that God has given us through it. We look upward. We give him glory, and we know that there are spoils. There are gifts that he brings us from above. What have I learned? How have I grown? How am I different? How am I kinder, wiser after getting through this battle? God has given me these incredible gifts because he never stopped being faithful to me. Then we generously share his goodness with everyone who encouraged us in the battle. We look outward like David did. Who can I use these gifts to help? I can go to the people that walked me through this battle. I can go the, to those who watched it from a distance. And I can just share it with anyone God puts on my path because I'm a little more conformed to Christ. So I can care about people better. I can counsel people better. I'm going to share those gifts with the people around. We can walk closer to God. We can walk closer to others because of the gifts God gives us when the battle ends. And we can decide, I'm going to make this a statute. That every time God makes me better and gives me gifts, I'm going to share that with other people for his glory. Look at Psalm 13. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Father, how kind you are. How, how amazingly forgiving and gracious that when we fail, our life isn't a failure. You are there. You reign supreme and you love us. We just praise you for that and ask that each day we would share the good gifts you give us with everyone around us and we give you praise for it. In Christ's name, amen.